I drove along, I'd, I'd gone maybe five minutes as far as Snyder, when the contractions seemed to be coming faster. She said, you might as well get out and ride in this new car with your daddy because both of you are going to have to drive it from now on. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you. And I'm really looking forward to the hour that we're going to spend today together. You're going to hear from the great North Carolina storyteller Donald Davis, a story called The New Car. You're going to hear a story from David Holt called The 123-Year-Old Washboard Player. But to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Lacey Ivey. Lacey, it's great to have you with me. So good to be here. We're going to hear a story uh, called The Sears Roebuck Baby. (laughs) There was a time when you could order just about anything from the Sears Roebuck catalog. (laughs) Tell me about this story. (laughs) It is just kind of what it sounds like. You can get almost anything, including a baby. (laughs) But uh, the teller um, Fran Yardley, she tells this story, and it's not even her own. It's about yeah. her mother and about how uh, she gave birth to Fran Yardley, kind of, yeah. how she came into the world. And it just so happens to involve a Sears robot. A Sears robot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is the kind of story that is worth uh, preserving and telling over and over and over again. Fran Yardley tells the story of how she came into the world, right? And that's a story that you could that that Fran Yardley's kids should hear, and their kids should hear, and their kids should hear. These imp- mm-hmm. these kind of canonical family stories, you know, For family sure. stories that belong to that rich tradition of family storytelling. The teller again is Fran Yardley. The name of the story is the Sears Roebuck Baby. Here it is on the Appleseed. When I first moved to the Adirondacks some 24 years ago with my husband Jay, we were newlyweds and we moved to a hill on Middle Saranac Lake, lived in a small cabin there without any electricity, 11 miles from the nearest town. And in my recollection, that first winter was very long and cold and snowy. So we snuggled in and it was only a matter of time before I became pregnant. Well, I was excited. This is my first baby. So I started looking around for all the baby paraphernalia I was going to need. And I soon realized that we were in a very rural area and that a good catalog would come in very handy. And it was then that I discovered Sears Roebuck. (laughs) Now, this is not a commercial for Sears Roebuck. But I would like to say that as I leafed through the pages of that catalog, I was able to find just about everything I needed for a baby. I got so excited, I called my mother up on the phone to tell her about it. Now, my mother understood, because my mother and Sears go back a long way. (laughs) As a matter of fact, my mother and Sears and I go back a long way. Now, my mom lives in Buffalo. She doesn't even have to worry about the catalog. She's got the real McCoy right down there on Main Street. She can go down there. And she always would claim that she could find just about anything that she needed at Sears Roebuck. But even my mother couldn't predict the item that Sears would deliver to her on a day in July in 1944. 
Now this is really my mother's story. So as I tell this, it's her voice that I hope you hear. July 15th, 1944. It was hot. It was so hot. And I was pregnant. I was very pregnant. I was due to deliver any day. What a day it had been. My husband Dave was at the office, but we had invited his sister, Fran, and her grown children for dinner. And I'd been going around all day trying to get ready for that. And my two little boys, Jimmy and David, age six and seven, they'd each managed to fall that morning off their bikes and skin their knees. And believe me, it took some doing in my condition to get down to the level of their knees to bandage them. And my little girl, Sally, she was two years old. She had just recently been potty trained. And she was so proud of the fact that she insisted that morning on sitting on the potty until she produced. And she insisted that I sit right there with her. Well, two hours later, I finally applauded and we were done with it. But now finally it was late afternoon and it was my turn to relax. So I ran a nice cool tub and I'd just gotten in it and settled back when I felt the first contraction. Now, there's something you ought to know about me. As I mentioned, I already had three children. And with each succeeding delivery, I'd become more and more notorious for my quick deliveries. So I knew when I felt a contraction, I should pay attention to it. Well, I rolled on out of the tub and grabbed a towel and threw a dress over my head and called to Agnes, a woman who lived with us. I said, Agnes, I, I'm going to go to the hospital. I think I'm having the baby. Uh, call Dave at the office and call Dr. Goldsboro. Tell them to meet me there. And I was out of the door before she could say anything. I got in our Ford Woody station wagon and started on my way. Now, we lived in Williamsville, about at that time a 45-minute trip from downtown Buffalo and the Children's General Hospital, which is where I was going. But I thought I had plenty of time. So I drove along. I'd, I'd gone maybe five minutes as far as Snyder when the contractions seemed to be coming faster. I saw a policeman, and I, I tooted, and I, I waved him over. He came over to the window. He was a young man. <laughs> he looked at me and I said, excuse me for bothering you, but I, I, I'm about to have a baby and, and, and I think I need your help. He was a young, young man. <laughs> he took one look at me, his face turned bright red, and he said, that's okay, lady. You have my permission to go as fast as you want. And he left. What? Well, I decided to take him at his word. I put my foot down on that gas pedal and off I went. But I hadn't gone more than maybe five more minutes as far as the main line when those contractions were coming strong enough, fast enough, I knew I needed help. And then up there at a stoplight, I saw my salvation in the form of a yellow convertible. I figured anyone who drove a yellow convertible must be a fast driver. I pulled my car right in front of him and. The man was out of his car over to my window saying, hey, lady, what? And I said, please, please, don't be angry. I, I'm about to have a baby. I, I need your help. Well, he took one look at me, and he knew I wasn't kidding. He said, oh, okay, get in my car, and, and I'll take you to the hospital. And I said, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. 
So I slid over on the seat, and he got in, and he started driving. Well, we started driving down Main Street, and I just was leaning on my hands and trying to breathe and relax. And the next thing that happened I wasn't aware of at the time. I was told about this later. As we were going along Main Street, coming in the other direction on their way out to our house for dinner was Dave's sister, Fran, and her children. And as they passed us, they recognized the car. And they said, what, that's Libby, turn around. So without my knowing it, they'd turned around and were following us. But I was just breathing and relaxing and breathing. And then I said, I don't think I'm going to make it. And then right there on Main Street in front of Sears Roebuck, <laughs> I had my baby. <laughs> I caught it in the towel I'd brought and held it up. It was a baby girl. She's not breathing. She's not breathing. What do, what do I do? The man, his wife, had just had a baby three weeks before. He said, the, the cord, it's wrapped around her neck. Get the cord off of her neck. And I took hold of the cord and I slipped it up over her head. It slipped off like a t-shirt. Her little face turned bright red. And she started to cry. She was immaculate, except for a little dab of what looked like cold cream on the top of her head. <laughs> I wrapped her in the towel and carried her that way to the hospital. It took exactly eight more minutes to get there. My mind was so clear, I remember that. When we got to the hospital, I have never seen such a commotion. Everyone seemed to be there. My mother was there. Dave had arrived from the hospital. And on the way, he'd been tooting the horn so much that the horn got stuck. And now there he was, standing under a sign that said, hospital zone quiet, with the horn blaring and the sheepish look on his face. And in all that commotion, I managed to notice down on Hodge Avenue, Mrs. Swift and Mrs. Curtis, two friends of my mother, sitting out on their porches, as they often did on a summer's afternoon, craning their necks out over the railing down toward the hospital to see what the commotion was. And I could just imagine Mrs. Curtis saying, why, it's that Libby Foreman having another baby. <laughs> <laughs> but in all that commotion, I never did notice what happened to the man who had given me a ride to the hospital. But my nephew, Brugge, he was there, and he went up to him and introduced himself and offered him a ride back to his yellow convertible. And on the way, he found out that the man's name was Bob Stevens and that he worked for Curtis Wright Aircraft. Well, we were so grateful, and of course we wanted to thank him. And so Dave called up Curtis Wright Aircraft, and he found out two things. One was that there are 50,000 employees of Curtis Wright in the greater Buffalo area. And the second fact was that 20 of them had the name of Bob Stevens. <laughs> this did not deter Dave. He got on the phone and started calling one after another. You can just imagine the kind of conversation he had. But finally, on the last call, practically, he got the right one. And he thanked him, and we sent him some champagne. And when we got out of the hospital, we invited him for dinner. 
And we also invited Fran and her children. We owed them a dinner, after all. And the evening came for the dinner. I have to tell you, I was very nervous. Because you see, when I was in the hospital, Bob Stevens had written a poem to me about our day together in the car. <laughs> and in that poem, he had made me sound so perfect, I was afraid to have him meet me and be disappointed. Well, Fran and her children arrived for dinner, and we waited for Bob Stevens. And we waited, and we waited, and he never arrived. And I've never seen him again to this day. But I have to tell you that every time I drive down Main Street and I go past Sears Roebuck, I think of that day in July of 1944 when Sears delivered to me an item that it has never <laughs> offered in any of its catalogs. <laughs> the story... Uh, the Sears Roebuck Baby by Fran Yardley. What a pleasure to listen to that story with you and also with Lacey Ivy. Lacey, thanks for bringing us that story. No problem. It's a fun one. Tell us what you love about that story. I heard it and I just about laughed because my family has a story with Sears, too. It has to do with my mom and her and her mom, my oh, grandma. Good heavens. Where... They went shopping right before closing, and my grandma didn't realize that my mom had stayed behind, and she just walked out of the store. And by the time she had loaded the car, the store had closed, but my mom was left inside of this oh, Sears. No. <laughs> and my grandma had to hurry and call management and security and get the store open. And they walk inside, and they found my mom just sitting next to a mannequin and talking to it like it was Santa Claus or something, just having this conversation with a mannequin. And they tell it, I think, about every year at every gathering that we've got. A child lost in the department store, right? That's yeah. the iconic <laughs> story. <laughs> it's, a, it's the most iconic one that we yeah. have. <laughs> Sears no longer a part of our lives. I, there's a, there, there is a Sears building here in the town where we record the apple seed. In fact... It was in the parking lot of that defunct Sears where they set up the first COVID testing stations in the area. Mm -hmm. And that's where I was tested for COVID-19 in the parking lot of Sears. Story after story after story. What a pleasure again to hear this story with you. And there's a lot more coming up here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on this hour of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a story from Fran Yardley called The Sears Roebuck Baby. And in just a bit you're going to hear a story from the great North Carolina storyteller Donald Davis, a story called The New Car. But because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you to share with the people you love, here's a memory of mine about a wild canyon ride at nighttime. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. Hmm. 
Don't ask me how I wound up on a date with three girls at once. It's a long story. Actually, I'll tell you. Here's the short version. In college, a couple of twins asked me if I wanted to go with them to a church dance. But my folks were in town, and we were going to go out for a milkshake after a show, and I told the twins that if they were still up for it, I'd call them after my parents took off, and we'd go for a walk or get another milkshake or something. And I was kind of new in town, and so I called another friend, happened to be a girl, and asked if she knew any place that might be fun to go for a walk at night. A walk, she said. How about a night hike? And I'll go with you and show you where it is. So there it was. Milkshake with my folks, and then me and three girls, the twins and the hiker, going on a night hike in a nearby canyon beneath the moon. Well, the hiker drove an old Saab, and we drove in that old Saab to the trailhead. Late summer air, warm, even though it was late at night. We parked next to the only other car in the lot, an old blue Chevy Blazer, and we began to hike. The slope was gentle, the company good, we were all glad to be together. I walked at a leisurely pace with the twins. The hiker would leap ahead and fall behind, leave the trail, come back again. This was a ramble she was accustomed to. And as the hike went on, her circuit got wider and wider, and sometimes for long stretches we wouldn't see her at all. It was a great evening, up the trail and then back down. And on the way down, after the hiker had been out of sight for a few minutes, our flashlight beam caught her 50 yards or so ahead of us on the path. She was breathing heavy. Her hair was hanging in front of her face, and she shouted something to us that chilled our bones. Did you see them? She said. We ran to catch up with her, and she told us that someone had jumped out at her from the brush. She had fought them off and the attacker had gone running down the trail. We kept close to each other, our hearts pounding, as we quickened our pace and got back to the car as quickly as we could. We got in the car and pulled out of the lot, a little rattled, but safe on the road. And suddenly, headlights clicked on behind us. In the mirror, we could just make out the shape of a Chevy Blazer, riding our bumper aggressively close. We hollered, and the hiker put the car into high gear. We raced down the canyon, the blazer right on our trail, at impossibly dangerous speeds, through curve after curve in the road. Then, a stroke of good fortune, we saw a side road leading to a little campground, and the hiker saw that and took it like a flash. The blazer sped noisily by. Shaking, we took a long moment to calm down, and then, when we were calm enough... We turned the car back onto the road and headed back down the canyon. But a quarter mile later, we tooled past a dark-colored vehicle on the side of the road. And as we passed it, its headlights clicked on behind us, and it swung into the road. It was the blazer. The hiker threw the car forward down the canyon, only inches, it seemed, from the bumper of the car behind us. We shot from the mouth of the canyon and into the parking lot of a busy all-night supermarket, and the blazer did not follow us. It peeled off up the road toward who knows where, and good riddance. Sweating, trembling, we got out of the car and went into the store. A box of donuts. Later, the fear had subsided enough that we felt like we could go home. We climbed back into the Saab and drove to the hiker's house. But as we pulled into the driveway, our headlights illuminated a terrifying sight. There in the carport was the blue blazer. The hiker threw the car into reverse. Tires squealed as we powered backward out of the driveway. We drove up to the dorms where I lived. 
The hiker swore to us that she had a safe place to stay that night, and she dropped the rest of us off, and that was pretty much it. A night of abject terror that in the end turned out to have been a prank. The blazer had belonged to a friend of the hiker. He was at her house. When I had called early that evening to ask about a good place to go for a nighttime walk with the twins, and the hiker and her friend had planned the whole thing, right then and there, the whole adventure. It was all a fantastically successful, practical joke, and I didn't learn it until years later, when I happened to be at lunch with some colleagues that I was only just meeting for the first time, and I learned that one of the folks I was having lunch with was the brother of the hiker. And I told him the story of our night of terror, and he chuckled and told us we'd been had. Though we thought our very lives were in peril, none of us was in any danger at all, even for a moment, except to our hearts and minds, which, as you can imagine, were an absolute wreck. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. In just a moment, you'll hear a story from Donald Davis about a new car. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the books that we cherish, the films that we see, the songs that we remember, the meals that we share, and talking with friends about some of the ways in which those great stories get down into our lives is something that we love to do here on the Appleseed. I'm pleased to be joined by a member of our BYU Radio family, Richie T., the co-host of The Lisa Show. Richie, it's great to have you with me. Thank you for having me here. You know, uh... We can talk about all kinds of things that sort of artifacts, you know, that trigger memories that are fun to share, fun and rewarding to share as stories. And for me, as I suspect for you, sometimes some of those some of those most important triggers are uh, are movies. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much that the movie's memorable as it is that the. The events surrounding the movie are memorable. The people that we saw it with, the conditions under which we saw it. Sure. Reasons why it continues to be a favorite have to do with some things that don't even sometimes have to do with the movie. And we're going to talk about uh, – before the mics went hot, we were talking a little bit about what movie we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. And I uh, – I, I, I was taken back in a way that I was uh, that I did not expect. But <laughs> what's the movie we're going to talk about? It's my side of the mountain. I know, right? Yes. My side of the yeah. mountain. I haven't thought about that movie in decades. Now, if for people who don't know, yeah. it's based on the book. Yeah. It's about a young kid who, as, as I recall, essentially just runs away from family. I can't even remember the scenario yeah. of. Why he leaves. It, it it might be like a familial disruption or I actually yeah. don't remember. This is what we're talking about, right? There, yeah. are, there are important details of the movie that we don't remember because they're not important to the memory, right? But <laughs> but the but the thing that, that just as I think about my side of the mountain that encapsulates my entire 
like 5 to 11-year-old part of my life is adventure <laughs> and just being able to feel like it's just me in the wilderness <laughs> and I could stay out here and I could survive if I needed to. That's right. Of course, I'd be home in bed by the time I needed to be <laughs> home in bed, but I could absolutely survive in the wilderness. And and, and I that's re- what's at the heart of this movie, yes. right? A kid surviving alone in the wilderness. And I, and I just remember as a young kid having had the opportunity to see this where it was the first time where i where i took something that i saw on the screen and took it into my life and i was like yeah okay i could do this yeah you know for so much before that i guess and, and this is obviously in my older eyes looking back on the younger part of my life it was just you know that was entertainment or yeah. that was just something that i would watch but this was this was the first time and i can remember Right after watching the film and going out and being like, see you later, mom. I'll see you in the fall or maybe it'll be winter. You know, whether it's because my mom wanted to clean my room. That's so right. unreasonable of her, by if the way. the past ain't snowed yeah. in, I'll be back come spring. Yeah. <laughs> to just go and do it. But I remember having some of the most precious, unique experiences. Yeah. Out in wilderness. And, and we talk about this, right? Media will talk about this. Uh, I think therapists will talk about this, yeah. how there is a connective um, uh, component of, of nature that you don't get anywhere else. Yeah. And you know what it's like being a kid. Everything is hard and everything is easy and figuring <laughs> stuff out is the hardest, easiest thing that you've ever done. And, and you just don't – you're trying to find your place in the world and how things work and yeah. why this is happening and all that. And you know, f- for me, uh, growing up in a household where, you know, my parents, as particularly in this time, were, were trying to figure out their marriage, right? right. So it was a little yeah. bit tumultuous within my house. And so to have the opportunity where it could just be myself yeah. in the wilderness and know that, okay, well, in this movie, this person did this. This must be what I need to be able to do <laughs> and just go out and, and build forts and try and capture cr- critters that I would then try and eat, <laughs> which I would have never eaten in a million years. But, but just being able to feel like, wow. I can see myself in that kid, in yeah. that film, and and just be able to experience it. I absolutely remember a time in my life when I was incapable of imagining navigating the world by myself, right? Yeah. I, 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 I figured my parents would always be there. Mm-hmm. I had these vague notions that I might someday be a grown-up, but had no idea what... Uh, what, what that was going to be about, you know. And then, of course, I remember a time when uh, when the, the, the notion of, of, of navigating the world by myself came b- became exciting for me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I don't remember what the fulcrum is, <laughs> right? And to hear for you mm-hmm. that it was the film My Side of the Mountain yeah. is a, just a little bit fantastic. I love that. Well, and, and so as part of that, building like that shelter, yeah. that place where I was like, I'm... I really could stay here tonight. <laughs> and the temptation to stay there that night and then the staying just a little bit later than I probably should have for permission's sake within right. my home. I was like, I'm totally going to do it. No, no, no. I better go back home and be able to have the home to retreat to. But yeah. the absolute feeling yeah. that I could if yeah. I chose to, yeah. huge. And you're painting the picture of 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 
of of a kid who's experimenting with bravery, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, who may not, in fact, have been brave enough to stay in the shelter all night, right? You know, but, right. Uh, and who you you talk about that that the safety of your home as a backup. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this this time in our lives when we feel perhaps braver than we are, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're glad to have a home to come back to, you know, long before we ever actually step off the high dive and there we are, you know, yeah. taking the plunge into the world of our own. Yeah, and sort of and sort of, you know, to take it out as a bigger life lesson. Yeah. I mean, to think about that now when I go to work or different things that I experiment in in life, it is very much creating that mm-hmm. I don't know how to build to lean to, but I'm going to need to figure this out. Oh, but I know that I can go home and that home can be my safety That's place. Right. Oh, great memories uh, uh, using as kind of their center point and sort of the springboard from which we can talk about them, this film, My Side of the Mountain. What a memory. Richie, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Richie Stedman. We'll be sure to have him back. There's a lot more coming up. Up next, you're going to hear a story from Donald Davis about a new car. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with me on this hour of the April Seat. Up next, I'm excited to bring you a story from the great North Carolina storyteller Donald Davis. This one is called The New Car. Even the title brings back memories for me. Here's the story from Donald Davis. The New Car. When my daddy and mother got married in 1943, my daddy drove a 1936 Plymouth, and my mother was not born to drive cars. That's the way the world was made then. We had one car, one driver, for one family. But but in the 1950s, by the time I'd started to school and my little brother had started to school, my dad decided my mother needed to learn to drive. He taught her to drive the car, and now in our family, we had two drivers, but just one car. And that's when my daddy first got the idea, we need another car. Every time he brought up the subject, my mother didn't even argue with him. She just laughed and walked out the door. And he told me that that meant he had lost. If she argued with him, he might have won. But when she laughed and walked out the door, there was no chance. So at our house, it worked like this. In the morning, we all got in one car. My dad took us all to school. My mother taught at the same school where my brother and I were students. My dad went on to work at the bank. In the afternoon, he would take a break, come pick us up, bring us home, go back to work at the bank. There was no need, my mother said, no need for two cars. Besides, she said, when a family starts going places in pieces, that's when they start to come apart. My dad kept on, kept on, kept on. 
Every time he brought it up, she laughed and walked out the door. My, my father's brother, Uncle Harry, was a Chrysler Plymouth dealer. He, he always brought us our new cars, and my dad said, I could call Harry. Harry could find me a good old used car, just a good old used car, so we'd have a second car. My mother would walk out the door laughing and saying, don't you even call Harry. I've already talked to him, and it's settled. I got to be 15 years old and got my learner's permit, and my dad really then began to get anxious for a second car. He said, Lucille, pretty soon we're going to have three drivers in the family, and then when Joe learns to drive, we'll have four drivers in the family. We really need another car. And she just laughed and walked out the door. The only thing she ever said was, if we got another car, People would say that the only reason I teach school is so you can buy things we don't need. And that was that. One day when I was almost 16 years old, we were riding toward home in the afternoon. When all of a sudden, without even giving a signal, my dad pulled off the side of the road into a place called Stan Henry's Used Cars. My mother said, Joe, what do you think you're doing? My daddy said, I'm not doing anything. It's already done. Stanley has these cars way back on the back that are called go-to-work specials. Now, now, they're not something you would want to take a long trip out of town with, but they'll work just to get you to work them back. That's why I didn't call Harry, because, you know, he lives a long way from here. But, but, but I've bought an old car from Stanley, and I'll just drive it just to work them back, and that way you'll always have the good car, and nobody will even interfere with it. My mother looked at me, and she said, You had something to do with this, didn't you? I was guilty even though I didn't even know what was happening. She said, you might as well get out and ride in this new car with your daddy because both of you are going to have to drive it from now on. And I got out at Stan Henry's used cars with my dad and watched my mother drive away. Well, as she drove away, my daddy started laughing. He said, well, now we're going to have to buy a car. I hadn't really done it yet, but, uh, but I guess now we're going to have to. Well, we met up with Stanley, and he took us back to the back of the lot where the go-to-work specials were all parked. It was past the pavement. They were parked on a, on a sort of dirt, dirt surface with a board fence. They were all backed up against the board fence. And I realized pretty soon why they were not parked on pavement, because on pavement, the oil they were all leaking would have come running out from under them, but on the dirt, it all got soaked up. There were old DeSotos, there were Studebakers, there was a Kaiser and a Henry J. The things you could buy parts for were long since gone from that row. Stan looked at my dad and he said, Now, Joe, any car on this row you can have for no more than $100. You just pick what you want and they'll get you to work and back. Well, my dad decided that for $100 you should buy a car by the foot. So we got down at the end of the row, sided down the front of that row of old cars, and picked the one that stuck out the most 
beyond the rest of the row. And when we walked up to it, we were looking at a 1953 Super Chieftain Pontiac. It had a big, heavy chrome bumper and grill on the front. It had chrome stripes that ran down the engine hood. On the other end, it had chrome stripes that ran down over the deck of the trunk lid. It, it had a hood ornament like a big amber Indian head. Chief Pontiac, the later I learned, would light up at night when you turned the car lights on. It had a big sun visor wrapped around the top of the windshield. You couldn't pull up close to a traffic light with that sun visor on the car or you'd never be able to see whether it was red or green. You had to stop way back or else stick your head out the window. My dad says, Stanley, tell me about this Pontiac. Stanley said, that's a good car. That's a good car right there. That, that is a straight eight, four-speed hydromatic. I thought they're speaking Greek now. My daddy says, well, does it run okay? Does it burn any oil? Stanley says, does it burn any oil? You never even have to check the oil in this car. Why, every time you fill it up with gas, you just put in a quart of 30 weight and you'll come out even all the way through. This car's on special today. I'll sell you this car today for $85. Uh, my dad on the spot shelled out $85 in cash, and we were now a two-car family. Well, the Pontiac started. I got in with my dad. He started to drive home, and I said, Now tell me about this car. What is that straight eight four-speed hydromatic stuff mean? My daddy said, Well, look how long this engine hood is. This car has straight cylinders, eight straight cylinders right in a row going way out through there. You see how long it is? It's for safety. If you hit something else with this Pontiac, it'll knock them right off the road, and it won't hurt you. And he said, four-speed hydromatic. Look down here at the floor. It only has one pedal, just a brake pedal. There's no clutch. This car knows when to change gears. It does that on its own. Well, we started home. And I found out pretty soon that that car had a transmission that must have been designed by a plumber. Because you'd start down the road, and all of a sudden it would change gears. Sounded like you were flushing the toilet. Then it sounded like the toilet would fill about halfway up, and then you'd flush it again. And every time it filled about halfway back, you'd flush it again. That car could not decide what gear it wanted to be in. One time it tried 13 different combinations between two traffic lights. Well, as soon as I got my driver's license, that became the only car I got to drive. It had a strange smell. The, the car smelled like a whole load of babies had been locked up in it on a hot day in the summertime, and somebody had rescued the babies just in time, but they hadn't cleaned up behind them. One day I commented on the car's smell, and my daddy said, that's why people get new cars. They like that new car smell. I said, this doesn't smell like a new car. He said, this car has what you call old car smell, and it will grow on you. Well, my dad and I shared that Pontiac for the next couple of years. And then when my little brother got his driver's license, the Pontiac was split three ways, three-way Pontiac. 
One day my dad came in and he said to my mother, he said, Lucille, the tires are worn out on the Pontiac. It's going to cost me more to buy a set of new tires than it would to just take the Pontiac back and get a better car. It is time to do that. She laughed and walked out the door. And my dad looked at me and he said, Son, it's your turn now. Come up with an idea. We need a better car. I had no ideas. One Sunday afternoon, I was out in the Pontiac, and I went by to pick up my three best friends, David Morgan, Bill McInville, Doug Robertson. We were going to go down to Clyde, about three miles away, to go bowling. It was a hot day, and when those guys got in that Pontiac, they started making fun of my car. They started talking about how it smelled, like, like a whole bunch of babies had spent the night in there without a mama to take care of them. They started talking about how if we really wanted to get there before they closed, we ought to get out and walk. They started talking about how you wouldn't get hurt if you fell out of this car unless you fell backwards, and I had to defend my Pontiac. I said, this is a good car. Let me show you how fast it'll go. And I mashed down on the accelerator pedal. We got up over 50 miles an hour. We got up over 55 miles an hour. And then pretty soon, you couldn't tell how fast we were going because the front tires were taking turns, bouncing on the pavement, and the whole speedometer needle was just jumping back and forth from zero to a hundred and back again. You could have chosen any speed you wanted and the needle passed right through it. All of a sudden, that Pontiac went kaboom, kawhack, whack, 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 and it was only the miracle of inertia that got us off the side of the road before it was completely dead and smoke and steam came boiling up from under the hood. We jumped out and opened the engine hood, looked through the smoke and steam, and when it cleared away, in the side of the engine block, there was a huge hole. And something hanging out through that hole that looked like a dog's tongue that I realized later must be one of the cylinder rods. Well, all you can do at a time like that is stand there and laugh. Then we stopped laughing because we realized we had to walk home, and I had to somehow explain the dead Pontiac. Well, we all walked back to town, split up, and when I started up the hill to, to our house, I noticed my mother's car was not there. I thought, ooh, this will be good. I'll only have to tell my daddy about it, and, and maybe that'll be a little bit easier. I walked in the door, and I could hear snoring, and a baseball game on television. Got in the living room. My dad was sitting there in a chair, sleeping through a baseball game. All of a sudden, he kind of jumped up and said, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know you were here. I didn't hear the car come in. I said, Well, actually, uh, it didn't. He said, What happened? I said, Well, it quit. He said, you didn't have a wreck, did you? No, 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 it just quit. You didn't run out of gas? No, it, we were driving along, and it just quit. 
he looked at me and he got a smile on his face and he said, Son, maybe we can use this. Come with me. We went next door to our neighbor Lawrence Leatherwood's house and my daddy said to Lawrence, he said, Lawrence, I need to borrow your Jeep and a rope strong enough to hang a dead Pontiac. And Lawrence said, what happened, Joe? My daddy said, maybe it's better if you don't know anything about it right now. And we went down where that Pontiac was off on the side of the road. And when my dad opened the hood, saw the big hole in the side of the engine block and the dog's tongue piston rod hanging out the hole, he got a big smile and he said, this is good. We tied the rope around the front bumper of that car, hooked it up behind the Jeep, pulled that dead Pontiac home, pulled it up in the driveway, My dad and I pushed the car right into the space where it always parked, went inside, put the keys on a little cup hook where they lived in the kitchen, and he said, now, your mother's gone to a ladies' meeting at the church. When she gets home, you talk about homework and MYF and girls. If anybody needs to talk about cars... I'll take care of it. My mother got home and she fixed our supper. We sat down at the table. We were eating supper. Nobody ever said anything. My dad never said anything. I was nervous. About the time we finished supper, my dad looked at my mother and he said, Lucille, tomorrow I need to start early and run over to Asheville to appraise a house for a man who's applying for a mortgage. I need to get over there early as I can, and I need to get back before lunchtime. So here's the deal. Tomorrow, I'm going to drive your car, and you can just drive the Pontiac to school tomorrow. I had a bite of biscuit half swallowed. I couldn't get it to go either way, just thinking about all the possibilities. I couldn't sleep that night dreaming about what was going to happen the next day. Next morning, I couldn't eat my breakfast, and I was amazed to watch my daddy sit there at that breakfast table and eat like it was going to be a normal day. In a little while, he said, Well, I better get going. Picked up my mother's car keys, went out, got in her car, and left. In about 10 minutes, she says, well, boys, come on. We better go to school. I got my book bag, and I stayed way back. I wanted my little brother in the front seat. I didn't want to be up there. I got straight behind my mother where she could not even see me. She put the key in that Pontiac, turned it on, hit the starter, and it just went kawam, kawam, bam. She said, it won't start. It's making a funny noise. I said, give it some more gas. You haven't driven it for a while. You've got to give it a lot of gas to get it started. She tried again. Wham, bam. I said, now you flooded it. It probably won't ever start. She says, well, come on. Let's go over to the Leatherwoods. Maybe they haven't left yet and we can get a ride. We got over there and she said to Lawrence, I can't get Joe's car started. He said, really? Could you take us to school? 
Well, Mr. Leatherwood was the school superintendent, so he not only took us to school, he promised he would come back and pick us up and bring us home in the afternoon. On the way home, he said, what's wrong with Joe's car? My mother said, well, I don't know. Will you come over there and take a look at it? He came over to our house, opened the hood on the Pontiac, and when he saw the big hole in the side of the engine block and the piston rod hanging out, he said, Good gracious Lucille, what in the world did you do to this car? She said, I think I flooded it. He said, I think you drowned it. This car will never run again. Well, I thought I knew my mother and daddy better than anybody else in the world knew them. But I did not realize that they knew one another better than I knew either of them. My mother went inside and proceeded to fix a very nice supper. Oh, it wasn't supper. It was dinner. My goodness, it was like Sunday. My dad came home, and we all sat down at the table, and we started eating. And about halfway through the meal, he kind of looked up, and he said, Well, Lucille, how'd everything go today? She looked at him, and she said, Just fine. I only want to know one thing. I want to know why you insist on continuing to drive a dangerous and worn-out piece of junk when your brother is a car dealer and you could get on the telephone right now and call him if you wanted to and tell him that you need a new car? And before the sentence was over, my daddy had Uncle Harry on the phone and that Saturday, ha-ha, we had a new one. I do not know how my daddy managed to get his next new car because by then I'd gone off to college and I wasn't there to offer any help. But I hope that the way they knew each other, they enjoyed it as much as they had the last time. <laughs> The New Car, a story told for you by the great storyteller Donald Davis. And speaking of great storytellers, David Holt is a wonderful storyteller and also a wonderful musician. He tells all kinds of tales, and some of the most captivating are tales about folks that he has met in his musical travels. This is one of those. It's called The 123-Year-Old Washboard Player, and I'm happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Here's the oldest person I ever learned anything from, the oldest person in the world. Her name was Susie Brunson. She was 122 years old when I took this picture. She was born in Bamberg, South Carolina, born in 1870. So when I would go down to see her, she would love for me to play the banjo. She would love to hear the old guitar and the slide guitar and the spoons, all that stuff. But the thing she always wanted me to play was her favorite instrument, the washboard. Well, I didn't really know how to play the washboard at that time. One day we were sitting around, she said, David, I wish you'd learn to play that washboard. I haven't heard a good one played in 112 years, I guess. 
I said, Susie, I will learn how to play if you will show me how to do it because I have no idea. See, she told me it was the only instrument they had in the black community in Bamberg, South Carolina. They played their gospel music on it, their dance music. Every kind of music they played was on the washboard. She said she'd show me. She said, first of all, just get some thimbles and put on your fingers like this. She said, now, don't scrub it like you see people on TV do. Don't scrub it. She said, just tap it lightly like this. She said, now, occasionally, you can scrub it if you want to. She said, now, you can put a little wood block at the bottom. I said, where did you get a wood block in 1870? She said, oh, we just hauled out a two by four. She said, now, you got to get a little tin cup and put it at the side. I bought a T-model Ford with a pistol and a ring. Had two front wheels and one back spring. It wouldn't sit too good, cause the seat was a plank. Off all the pieces, it was hard to crank and boom. And now when it start, gonna let it toot, run on nothing but whiskey and tobacco juice and boom. I've had a great last few years. Been traveling around with Doc Watson, playing a lot of his concerts, for, and so I've been able to learn. Yeah, he's he's my hero. Doc is, and one of the best traditional musicians America has ever produced, I would say. Anyway, I've learned this old harmonica tune from Doc. It's called Rain Crow Bill, and I thought, boy, that would be perfect for the washboard, Susie Brunson style of washboard. That's what it sounds like. Recorded live at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. That was the 123-year-old washboard player from David Holt. It's been such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. We've been able to enjoy stories from Donald Davis, from David Holt, from Fran Yardley. Join us online at byuradio.org slash appleseed. There are all kinds of things for you to enjoy there, including nearly 2,000 episodes of the show filled with stories for you and your family. You can also find there uh, Appleseed Extras. We call them that. They're just little tiny mini episodes of the show, a single story long in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill those few minutes with a great tale. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson, and I can't wait to be with you again. 
on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. Hi, Sam here. Just one more thing before we go. We want to invite you to join BYU Radio, the folks who bring you the Appleseed, for a month of service. From September 20th to October 16th, we'll be asking our listeners to collectively complete 10,000 acts of service. Now, you don't have to do all 10,000 acts of service yourself. There are listeners all over the country who will be happy to help. Now, participating is easy. Number one, just get out and serve. Anything from taking cookies to a neighbor to picking up trash at a local park, anything. Number two, tell us about what you do. You can visit byuradio.org service to shoot us a message about the acts of service that you're doing. And we might choose your story to feature on the air. You can tune in to BYU Radio to hear what others are doing. Now, the slogan for this campaign is bring it. It's got kind of a double meaning, right? A confident response to the service challenge of 10,000 acts of service. I mean, we say bring it to that. And also bring it as in bring what you have and serve. Bring your enthusiasm, bring your interests, bring your talents, bring your hunger for change, bring your cans of food, whatever you've got that you can bring. There's a service opportunity that will be right for you. So come be a part of something big and wonderful as we serve together. Visit byuradio.org service to learn more. Thanks.